This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music all in less than 30 minutes. Sometimes we dig into a theme, like the music of a certain city or the influence of a particular record label. On this episode, it's drums and drummers. Greats like Led Zeppelin's John Bonham. Cream's Ginger Baker. And Keith Moon from The Who pioneered a powerhouse sound and brought a thrilling complexity to their playing. Others like Sleater Kenny's Janet Weiss. And The Roots' Questlove brought a steadiness and restraint, allowing the mood of a song to shine. It's not just about the best, it's also about those influential and inspirational players who brought a new vocabulary to drumming across popular music. Many of the greats drew an influence from jazz drummers, so we've brought in a jazz specialist to give us some deeper insight into its influence on the playing styles of modern drummers. Henry Rasmussen is a producer at ABC Jazz and a jazz drummer in his own right. Henry chose three essential drummers for us to check out and tracks that best display their craft. I asked Henry first up if there was a through line across the tracks he chose for us. I guess I was trying to find things that would be related to jazz, but also would appeal to a wider audience, maybe as a, as a point to sort of get into to jazz music, but also from the perspective of the drummers who play on these tracks. I mean, I think if you want to talk about jazz and drums and just sort of drums in popular music in general, which jazz was a popular music back in the day, but the drums were sort of invented for jazz. I mean, they kind of came about at the same time. Um, we're talking, you know, like the early early 1900s here or late, late uh, 19th century. And there's just all this gear lying around, particularly in the city of New Orleans. And, you know, it's sort of post-Civil um, War in America. And it's like, well, we've got this new music style we want to play. And, well, there's a snare drum over there that was from a marching band. And those two crash cymbals that someone beat together, let's put them on a stand and then try and make those things, you know, get pounded together. Oh, okay, that's the hi-hats. And then, oh, there's a bass drum that someone would hit with their hand. Okay, kick that with your foot. And then suddenly you've got a drum kit. And so I, I think the, the sort of essence of drums and music in the 20th and 21st century, they're very much sort of, they came out of that um, sound of jazz and, and very early players like um, Baby Dodds. So, you know, I think 
I think um, certainly for the drummers that we've got today on the show, their lineage would date back to those early um, sort of years in in Dixieland music and in ragtime and jazz. Fantastic. Okay. And speaking of, well, we should kick off and and get you to um, talk about your first um, choice, which is, um, well, I don't think there's any question that he was the most dapper and most nonchalant of drummers, brought his own quiet coolness to the band that he played in. Uh, We're speaking about Charlie Watts. This is the first selection, is it? Henry? Yes, oh, certainly. I mean, you can't not talk about, you know, 20th century drummers and not mention Charlie Watts. And I think what's interesting about him is his kind of, he's, for me, the ultimate servant to music. I think he was never fully comfortable as being sort of the pop star or or fully associated with like the Mick Jagger and the Keith Richards side of the Rolling Stones. But Charlie Watts, you know, he started out as a jazz musician and even before that, I think he was like a graphic designer and, you know, actually did a bunch of graphic designs for a bunch of Rolling Stones albums, which is kind of cool in itself. Yes. But yeah, I mean, he played with um, a band in London called Joe Jones or the Joe Jones All-Stars and Joe Jones, um, for those who don't know, is actually the name of a very well-known big band drummer from like the 1930s and 40s. So already he's, he's sort of overtly saying, you know, I'm a jazz guy. Mm. Um, but he gets recruited into the Stones by sort of his association with various sort of rhythm and blues bands in London. Um, and I always loved this quote that he had, you know, when someone said rhythm and blues, he said, oh, you know, like rhythm changes and blue changes, Charlie Parker, right? Which are sort of jazz styles. Um, mm. And it's like, oh, no, R&B music. And go, oh, okay, R&B music. Okay. <laughs> I see what you're saying, you know. So he was very much cut from a jazz cloth. uh, And then he brought that sort of way of playing into pop music and into rock music. uh, And it stuck. It worked. I mean, I I think he never missed a Rolling Stones gig. And, you know, talk about being a servant of the music uh, and just playing and grooving away and sitting in the pocket. I mean, for me, that's, that's what Charlie Watts is. And that's what he brought to whatever style of music, whether it was at Wembley Stadium or at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London. You know, he was always just, I'm here for the music and, and that's what I want to be. I want to be a musician and I want to play the drums and the rest of it, I don't really care about. <laughs> and the song that you've chosen for us, tell us why this track really stands out for you um, as, as something that, you know, is special to Charlie Watts? Aside from being the Stones drummer for all those years, um, he did run a number of jazz bands. And so I thought a good nod to Charlie Watts would be to play something from his jazz group. Um, this is from Charlie Watts, recorded live at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. And Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club is sort of the place to be if you're in London as a jazz musician. That's kind of the iconic um, sort of European club, you know, the equivalent would be the Vanguard in New York or the Blue Note Club. Um, but, you know, this is this is uh, the Rolling Stones drummer. You can just go and watch him and, and have dinner and a wine in sort of downtown London uh, and, and just check out one of the most sort of famous people on earth playing with a jazz band. So this is Charlie Watts and his Tentet, which features a bunch of uh, UK musicians uh, as well as American musicians too. So I thought I'd play the tune Chasing Reality, which is a sort of a raucous jazz jam. Um, It's got some funk elements about it. It's got some New Orleans sort of second line elements about it. And again, Charlie Watts, he doesn't take a solo on this. He doesn't do anything sort of flashy or flamboyant. 
He's just locking in with the other musicians, you know, eyeing off the bass player and nailing the groove. So I thought it was a good testament to his playing all around. Talking about drummers who have got, um, you know, very rich lineages, um, you know, in music, and, and the next one you've chosen for us is Buddy Miles, who his his father was a band leader. Is that correct? Yeah, I think his dad was uh, George Miles Senior, and he was a, an upright bass player. That's the double bass, not the uh, electric kind. But <laughs> he played in the '40s and '50s with. Pretty much the who's who of jazz in those days. The real innovators like Duke Ellington and Count Basie, who were big band leaders. And then sort of the beboppers who were sort of the, you know, there was the swing era and then there were all these crazy young people that they called the beboppers who were trying to do a new thing back in the 1940s. And, and the real sort of icon of bebop, who Charlie Watts was a big fan of too, was Charlie Parker, or sometimes he's referred to as Bird. Uh, and Charlie Parker was sort of the leader in this movement called bebop. But that's who uh, Buddy Miles' dad was playing with. And so you can imagine this young kid, uh, I think he grew up in like Omaha or something like that, but he's getting exposed to all these uh, very rich and innovative players in who are very much entrenched in the jazz style. Uh, and I, I believe his dad even recruited him to play in one of his own jazz bands. So he's getting a taste of being a professional musician as a teenager, as well as being exposed to all this, you know, amazing jazz music uh, from that era. I think he wasn't just a drummer too. I, he, he sung yes. and he played guitar and he, he was a, a record producer as well. So he's kind of got his hands in all, all pieces of the pie as, as a multi-instrumentalist. Sure. And his style and his, his sensibilities as a musician were broad as well. I mean, he's, uh, you know, his music crossed into, um, you know, blues, there's funk, there's doo-wop, R&B as well. And, you know, the, of, of course he has a, uh, uh, a history making, well, I mean, he's, he's a very respected drummer, but you know, his time with Jimi Hendrix really stands out, doesn't it? Yeah. I think that's, if we're going to pick, you know, one moment from Buddy Miles's career, it'd probably be the collaborations in the late sixties with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I guess that era in music in general, there was just so much happening um, you know, and, and the Beatles and the Stones helped sort of kick off this new wave. But then the jazz guys decided to embrace that. And so they came up with this this um, style that they called fusion, which is sort of a dirty word these days. You know, you don't want to talk about jazz fusion. It's it's too nerdy or something, you know. But certainly in the late 60s, it was all the rage and everyone was checking out 
you know, amplification, guitar effects. Let's overdrive the heck out of this guitar. Let's play the Fender Rhodes. So there's all these musical innovations going on. And I think for Buddy Miles as a drummer, he's like, okay, I got to keep up with this. And, you know, we're not playing in a jazz club with my dad anymore. I've really got to whack this thing. But he's coming with this huge history already in his playing. And you can really hear that um, in, in a lot of the Jimi Hendrix recordings from that era. There's certainly, you know, some hard hitting playing, but it's very much informed by the jazz uh, aesthetic as well. And what was the, uh, what, what's the song that you've chosen for us from Buddy Miles? Is it from his time with Jimmy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't sort of go past the album Electric Ladyland. And um, I think for Buddy Miles and for Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix, they landed in this place where the studio wasn't just you come in and record your album in an hour sort of thing, which is what they used to do in the jazz era. They just pop into the studio and do the album and then it's done. Call some tunes, okay, got the record and it's pressed like next week. They sort of started to see the studio as this opportunity to sort of collaborate and say, okay, we'll just hit record and see what happens. You know, let's just jam. And I I love the way that this this whole album is kind of like, there's just all these jams going on between different musicians um, and, you know, that, that really pops out in the playing um, of Buddy Miles, of course. And so the track we're going to listen to is Rainy Day, Dream Away, which is another one of those jams. It features a bit of sax, so maybe it lands in the in the jazz realm. But I think from the drummer perspective, uh, um, Buddy Miles, he plays this sort of shuffle beat, which again is sort of, it comes out of the jazz uh, vocabulary or the jazz drummer vocabulary. There was another performer named Art Blakey, and he invented this sort of sort of shuffle. Uh, and Buddy Miles is basically playing a Blakey shuffle. He's just doing it with a lot more crunch uh, and a lot more sort of slap on the snare drum than, than Art Blakey might have done it 10 years earlier. But it is, again, very much informed um, from the jazz style, and it's a great tune. We'll get into something real nice, you know. Right, we've got one final pick from you, Henry. It's been uh, fantastic to, you know, well, hear a lot of the history and, and you know, drawing out the story, the lineage um, uh, of, you know, the d- development of jazz. Um, and you've got one final selection for us from a drummer by the name of Billy Cobham. Can you tell us a little bit about why this drummer, you know, well, commands so much esteem? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the best way to summarize is if you just pop onto YouTube and search early Mahavishnu Orchestra, you'll see Billy Cobham behind the drums. And you got to understand as well that he's come from, like a lot of these plays, he's come from the jazz lineage, but suddenly we're sort of landing in the early 1970s. And like we were saying before, there's amplification, there's, you know, guitar effects, they're putting all sorts of synthesizers up and it's like, okay, well, the drums, they've got to keep up with this. Otherwise no one's going to hear me play. And uh, I think we were talking Charlie Watts before being this understated servant of the music. Billy Cobham's sort of doing a big 180. We're, we're just going to put the drums front and center. They're going to be see-through as well. So you can see pretty much everything going on. <laughs> And we're going to wear really tight shirts and it's going to be really hot. So we're going to sweat like pigs and we're just going to play for like half an hour straight on these crazy, crazy jazz tunes. Uh, and that's where Billy Cobham is, is sort of uh, in his element. Um, and he's, he's very, I wouldn't want to say like he's not a servant in the music, but he is way more sort of choppy and, and flamboyant and showy than, than a Charlie Watts was. But I think that's what the music at the time was calling for. And Billy Cobham, he is just spraying 16th notes out there. Uh, and for the, for the uninformed 16th notes, you're playing fast, essentially. Mm. This is fast playing. It's tricky time changes. It's all sorts of movements going on. And it's jammy, but we've also got to keep an eye on the, you know, the lead player because he's going to cue the next section and we, we've got to be ready for it, guys. So it's sort of like... Seven, the 70s version of the Mars Volta, essentially, is what we're looking at here. These guys are just going for it. And Billy Cobham, he is the drummer who made that happen for this band, Mahavishnu Orchestra. But he also played kind of like um, Buddy Miles. He was his, a leader in his own sense, and he led his own ensembles. And I think the other interesting thing to note about Billy Cobham is that he was left-handed, but he played a right-handed drum kit. So there's kind of two ways to play. You can set your drum kits up and you lead with your right hand or you set your drums up on your left because you're a southpaw and you lead with your left hand. He kind of did this weird mix of both. And I think that really, uh, that really made his sound unique in that his fills resolved in these really interesting ways and that he could just really chop out with all these extra symbols. And he was basically just like this orangutan, you know, huge arms and he could reach anywhere and playing these huge drum kits, of course. And it really just was this massive sound. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you spoke about his speed um, as being a feature of his his drumming style. I mean, the complexity as well. Mm. Um, listening to this track, though, there's, there's just this airy kind of smoothness as well. Listening to him do all of it, but it it feels effortless, actually. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's It's like these these tunes, they're almost on the edge of being train wrecks. And that's probably one of the one of the hallmarks of this sort of jazz funk, jazz fusion style where you're playing right on the edge and things could fall, fall apart at any minute. But these players, they're so locked in and they're so in tune with each other that the tune just grooves on and it's like, well, this is going to fall apart. But then they nail beat one of the next bar and you're like, oh, it's amazing. How did they do that? You know. <laughs> um, so I think the track that we're going to listen to, it's from an album called Spectrum, which came out in the early 70s. And the tune is, a, is it's more of a funk number. They're sort of just jamming on a couple of different chords, but it's called Stratus. And it's, um, yeah, it's a great sort of uh, showcase of the sound of Billy Cobham being able to play perfectly in the pocket, but then just exploding into these virtuosic um, fills and solos as well. 
When talking about influential drummers, you have to make mention of Beatles drummer Ringo Starr. The left-handed drummer played a right-handed kit and was renowned for his rhythmic hooks. Here he is in 1975 talking about his favourite Beatles songs to play on. Well, I appreciate we made a lot of good music. We had a lot of good times. I thought it was one of the best bands in the land. Not that we were all the greatest musicians. It was just, as a band, we really um, made a lot of good music. So I appreciate all that. Yeah, I appreciate the 10 years we did it, you know. Taught me something. Never want to do it again. <laughs> well, the White Album and Abbey Road have always been my favourites. So everyone says, Sergeant Pepper, man, what an album. For me, it was never the album. And I like certain tracks, you know, like Rain and Strawberry Fields. I think I mainly like John's tracks. Because uh, they were always the ones that were more interesting, you know as a player and as an actual track, you know. When it comes to local heroes, go-between's drummer Lindy Morrison offered a tantalising momentum to some great Australian classics. Here she is talking to Zan Rowe in 2021 about what drew her to the drums in the first place. Uh, the physicality of it. I really liked that you could be so physical. And you know what's so interesting now is that uh, now I'm trying to make it as less physical as I can. I'm trying to make it uh, myself as still and as quiet as possible. Else Amanda Brown would never play with me again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've been working on brushes for the last um, three months, just brushes alone. And, you know, really, it doesn't require a lot of effort. It just requires an incredible amount of skill. Uh, so, you know, I went from, you know, like punk music was so fast and so hard uh, you know, I used to play really, really hard, but these days I don't get any sort of gigs like that. They're not the gigs I get. The gigs I get, are, uh, uh, I have to play much quieter. And, and, and in particular, that's why I've taken a real interest in playing brushes. Another Aussie drummer doing big things is Stella Mosgawa from American band Warpaint. Mosgawa has made a name for herself as an in-demand collaborator and producer and counts Zach Hansen, Aphex Twin and the late great Tony Allen as influencers. Here she is on Double J in 2022 talking about the Afrobeat pioneer and drumming legend. Tony is probably my favourite drummer in the world and I've stolen everything from him and I'm sorry, I apologize. Tony, if you're listening, I appreciate you. Punk legend Bill Stevenson is one of the most influential figures in West Coast punk rock. Known for his rapid-fire roles and relentless charge behind the kit for Descendants, 
He paved the way for bands like Green Day, Blink-182 and Weezer. And there's one very beloved drummer who cites Bill Stevenson as a major influence on his love of drumming. One of the first albums that Dave Grohl listened to as he was learning how to play was Milo Goes to College by Descendants. Grohl's even confessed to stealing beats from Bill when he was playing with Queens of the Stone Age. It is from Descendants Bill Stevenson that we can draw a line to one David Eric Grohl. Some people would be lucky enough to be in one great band in their life. And you, you know, with the Nirvana thing, with the Foo Fighters thing, you know, playing drums with Queens of the Stone Age, being involved in that, just, you've been in some of the biggest bands in the world. It's sheer talent, that's what it is. It's just unabashed, complete musical genius. <laughs> no, you know what it is? I just have a good time, man. You know, I don't take anything that seriously. When it comes to making music, for sure. I mean, I, you know, when we get in the studio, we work. For everything else, I mean, you know. Don't the best of And after the success of Foo Fighters' first two albums, which both featured Grohl on drums and vocals, the post-Nirvana project was so popular it needed a proper band to propel it forward. In 1997, the one and only Taylor Hawkins became a fully-fledged member of Foo Fighters and continued with the band until his untimely death in 2022. Here's Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins talking to Richard Kingsmill in 1999 about what it was like making music with Foo Fighters. It can actually be really tough for me because I don't know exactly sometimes how to approach, like, you know, a lot of times they would be like, well, let's do that chorus part like three times. And I'll be like, dude, what's the chorus? (laughs) (laughs) Is it happy? Is it sad? All right. No, like which part is the chorus? (laughs) Right. Okay. So uh, it can be kind of, it's, it's kind of like, you know, playing, uh, Pin the tail on the donkey in the dark, you know. There were things where I would be like, eh, that's an all right. And, and, and it kind of jams a little bit. It's all right. And then he would send me the tape with the with the lyrics and the vocals on it, and I'd go, fuck, no, is this an yeah. awesome song. Like, wow, I just didn't think it was going to be anything. And then he put this amazing melody on it, and you're like, wow, it's a great... It's like a surprise package in yeah, the mail. and then it makes everything else come out nicer, and everything's got more of a a reason of being there, you know, and the dynamics come out so much more.
If what they say is true, a band is only as good as its drummer. One thing's for sure, it takes an intriguing and individual combination of skill, instinct and physicality. And some of the most loved songs in modern music wouldn't be as special without the drums and the drummers behind them. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.